missions, and we work together on moving the mission forward, which is an initiative to plant churches across uh, Canada. And so uh, it's with a great deal of confidence uh, that uh, I introduce Mike to you this morning. I know he's going to bring a word from the Lord for us, and uh, I want to pray for him as he comes amongst us. So welcome, and uh, let's pray together. Father God, thank you for Mike, and uh, thank you for uh, the journey that uh, has taken him uh, through pastoring and now into this role as uh, Executive Director of Vision Ministries. Lord, I pray that as he comes to us this morning, that you would fill him with your spirit, uh, you'd give him words uh, from you for us, uh, and that uh, he would have great joy as he uh, preaches this morning. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, good to be here, and I should begin by saying I enjoyed your announcement time this morning. I enjoyed to see, as I looked at this announcement up on the screen about your photo directory, that at one point along the way, the rock band Foreigner was a part of this church. <laughs> and on your behalf, I'm excited about the baptism that you have up and coming uh, pretty soon. I heard three things about it, 6.30, 6.15 in the morning, in the ocean, and it's a baptism. Let me tell you, only one of those three things warms my heart. <laughs> Good to be here as Executive Director of uh, Vision Ministries Canada. Vision Ministries has been going since 1992. Uh, on the one hand, we are part uh, mission agency that works amongst the constituency of churches. And on the other hand, Vision Ministries is also that network of churches that's grown up around that mission agency over the last 27 years or so now. Our vision is to see more people, more women and men, primarily here in Canada, become committed, faithful followers of Jesus. I mean, we're involved around the world a little bit, but we spend most of our time and energy here, so we want to see people not just accept Christ, but begin to follow after Christ with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And of all the things we do, uh, I think most of our activity can be captured by our motto, more and better churches. We're excited about the local church because we believe that the local church is still at the center of God's redemptive purposes and his redemptive activity in the world. Now, we know that God works beyond the confines of the church, but he's using the church to rescue people and to rescue the creation. And so we focus, when it comes to the church, on four major things. We plant new churches. We help existing churches find their way into greater vitality. We encourage and support leaders and we spend some time and energy networking those leaders and networking those churches together. And I would be remiss if I didn't pause here for a second this morning and say thank you, Granville family, for being such wonderful partners. I think Granville has been alongside Vision Ministries long before I joined the organization. For years, you've partnered in this work that I have just described for you. And I am quite aware that for the last six or seven years, Granville has been an active partner in this national partnership that Andy just referenced, moving the mission forward national. We also do this at the regional level as well. But at the national level, there's this collection of 15 or 16 churches. They are no, by no means our favorite churches compared to other ones, but they are churches that have been good friends with us over the years. They are churches that have an outward posture. They're always interested in blessing the community, so, so they, they get mission. And they are churches that kind of um, display a relative degree of healthiness. These churches get together a couple times a year, these 15 or 16. And from these churches, there are proposals that are put on the table for providing grants for various church startups, church planting efforts. And uh, what this group does is it scrutinizes these, these applications, vets them to a certain degree, um, 
comes up with some wisdom to offer back to those that are going to initiate them. We pray for them. We take stories of these church plants home. But what each of these churches do is they put money into a pot to make sure that there are startup funds, grant funding, in order to make, that these th- make sure that these things come into being with the necessary resources. You, for six or seven years now, have been a part of that national partnership. You, through your faithfulness, through your prayers and celebrating some of these stories and by making financial resources available, have helped new churches come into being, churches that have made it possible for people to hear about Jesus, accept Him as Savior and Lord. So, sincerely, as somebody who works for this team, thank you so much for being faithful, for being excellent stewards before God. Now, stewardship is where I would like to go this morning in some of our reflections, and I'm going to get there in a little bit of a roundabout way. It was about a month ago I found myself in London, Ontario on a Saturday morning at the Metropolitan United Church, and uh, there was a special guest in town that day. Rowan Williams was there to receive an honorary doctorate from Heron College, which is associated with Western University, and while he was there, he was giving a series of lectures. Now, if you don't know who Rowan Williams is, he was the last or the previous Archbishop of Canterbury. And if that doesn't mean anything to you, think Pope of the Worldwide Anglican Fellowship. Not technically, but that's kind of the same thing. I'm not sure he's fond of being referred to in that way. Anyways, he was in town to give a series of lectures and to receive this this doctorate. And uh, while I was there, I had a chance to hear him uh, provide a lecture on the essence of discipleship. He said, the life of being the disciple is related to several things. One, disciples have to give themselves to thinking. And for him, when he started talking about thinking, he mostly meant learning, allowing the Spirit of God to lead us into fresh discovery, to see the world through new eyes. He said that disciples are also people who are called by God to not just to be thinkers, but to be doers as well to be involved in activity. And when he was talking about activity, he was talking about mission. To be people who pay attention to the mission of God in the world, the Missio Dei, to look for where God is actively present, and then to come alongside and to join what he is up to in the world, to be people who are acting. But he spent most of his time that morning talking about this third thing. He said the life of being a disciple relates to, of all activities, praying. And he spent some time unpacking that. He said, prayer for us as disciples is our most fundamental way of spending time in the company of Jesus. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you need to spend time in the company, in the presence of Jesus. Prayer is the best way that allows us to do that. He said, prayer for the disciple cannot merely be about results, As much as the Bible encourages us to ask God for things and to believe in the efficacy of prayer, prayer is not primarily about results. Nor can prayer for us become simply simply seeking after one experience or another. It is not a series of mountaintop ecstatic experiences in the presence of the Lord. That is not what prayer is about. Prayer is primarily about finding ourselves in the company of of Jesus. He said, it is kind of like spending time on a, on a sunbed, on a tanning bed. Prayer allows us to place ourselves within the reach of God's light and allow that light to do its gracious work on our life. 
He said the difference is, if we're not careful, with a sunbed, uh, it can easily lead to death, whereas the other thing he was talking about certainly we know leads to life. And he said it's in the company of Jesus that we finally become aware of who we are in relationship to God. There in the presence of Jesus, we come to realize for the very first time that God is the creator, the holy other, and that we are merely the creation, the creature. And in quietness and in stillness, in that place, we come to realize that our entire being, our entire existence, the breath we draw, our life, all its resources, all the opportunities are only ours because they flow out of the generosity of this wonderful creator. He says it's important for us to understand who we are, and prayer leads us to that place. Now, for me, the creation narrative helps me understand who I am before God. And I know many of you are familiar with this. We come to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26, 27, and 8, and there we're informed that we as human beings, women and men, are created in the image of God. What does it mean to be an image bearer? Well, probably one of several things. One line of thought is that we were called into being to reflect the relationality of God. God who reveals himself as Father, Son, and Spirit creates us as beings who are also intended to enjoy a life of relationship. In fact, we can't truly know who we are without knowing that in relationship with other people. It's actually relationship with others that help us to understand and discover our true identity. But I think being an image bearer is more than that. I think it has something to do with the idea of representation. Where do I get this from? Well, I go all the way back to the beginning of the chapter. There, when the creation story opens up, we find two things. We find formlessness and void, theologians tell us. Chaos and emptiness. And the rest of the creation story is God basically responding to that plight, to that situation. In the first three days of the creation story, what do we have God doing? There we find God creating order out of the chaos. He creates structure and spaces in those first three days. And so we read about God creating day and night on day one. Day two, he separates the waters below from the waters above and creates sky. On day three, he separates the land from the water and creates land for us. He structures space out of the chaos. On days four, five, and six, he creates bodies, celestial bodies, to fill the emptiness that was there before. And the bodies that he creates correspond to the, spa- or to the structure that he created. So on day four, we read about God creating the greater lights and the lesser lights. The sun to govern the day, the moon and the stars to govern the night. And what do we get on day five? We find God creating the birds to fill the sky and fish to, spill, to fill the sea. And on, grades, on day six, we find God creating all the creepy, crawly things to fill the land that he created. See what God's up to? Creates space, order out of the chaos in the first three days, and then he takes care of the emptiness on the next three days by creating these wonderful, beautiful bodies. And then when he comes to kind of the pinnacle of his creative act, creating you and I, his, the, the women and men, we read about him creating us in his image And I think understanding which image-bearing is all about has something to do with what he says next. Maybe I should read it for you. This is chapter 1 of Genesis, verses 1 
verse 27 and 28. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. I don't know about you, but when I read the words that we are called to subdue the earth and to rule over it, it sounds an awful lot like some of the work that God was doing earlier in the passage. God was subduing the chaos and bringing order out of it. I think God here is saying, I have created you, called you into being to make sure that you govern over, that you subdue the unruliness of the earth because its tendency will be to decay back into disorder. I invite you to do the very work that I was doing. And I don't know about you, but when it says in this passage that we were created to be fruitful and to multiply, that sounds an awful lot, again, like the work of God who created something where there was nothing. He created these beautiful bodies to fill the empty spaces. God has called us into being to do exactly the same thing, to be creative with the capacities and the minds and our impulse to make things. He wants us to be creative in this life as well. I read... Genesis chapter 1, and I believe that to be an image bearer is to do the work of God, to be like God with his creative thrust, to call things into being, to subdue the chaos, and to fill the emptiness. God is like this emperor in ancient times who ruled over vast lands and territories and provinces, but to make sure that things were taken care of out there in the provinces, he would put in place an underking, a vassal king. And he would say, rule on my behalf in this place. God has done somewhat the same thing with us. As image bearers, he has set us up as small as sovereigns over this world to be caretakers for it, to steward it in his absence. Now, we know theologically God isn't completely absent. He's here by his spirit. But physically, we are in the world on his behalf, exercising his dominion under his dominion. And it's always important to understand that the freedom and the things he has invited us to do is very much under his sovereignty. We are simply caretakers, stewards of this world and the life that he has called us to live. Get that stuff mixed up and you have a tough time living your life faithfully as a follower of Jesus. We moved into the house that we're in now. We downsized a couple years ago. We live in this little place, a little over 1,000 square feet. And uh, we had just moved into it. My wife and I went on holidays overseas for about two and a half weeks. And we left my then 21-year-old daughter in charge of the house. We said, it's yours. Use it the way you want to. But be responsible and take care of it. Well, about two and a half weeks later, we got back from our trip overseas to discover that there was food in the fridge that should have been thrown out a week or two before that. And as we checked under the sink and in the garage, we noticed that the garbage hadn't been taken out since before we left, so we're talking three weeks now. And we realized that it was a party. There had to be a party along the way, because when we looked under the chairs and looked under the couch, we saw Fritos and Cheetos and Cheesies. 
And uh, we noticed on the wall over by our dining room table lots of stains where we discovered later on they had played beer pong on our dining room table. And when we looked in the mailbox, there was a note from one of the bylaw officers reminding us what time of night it was no longer permissible or courteous to make noise. Apparently, there was a party at our house where a few people were invited over and a few people turned into many people and it spilled out on our front lawn with lots of merrymaking and noise making. My daughter was not a good steward. She had been given a trust. Lots of freedom here. We want you to enjoy yourself, but don't misuse it. And sometimes before the God who created us and called us into being and here and said, here is a wonderful world with lots of resources. It will bless you. It's a thing of beauty. You will not go without. Just take care of this life. Be a steward before me. We get it all messed up along the way. We forget our responsibility. And it affects the way that we use our talents, three T's here, so you remember. Talents, time, and treasure. Messes up how we use our talents, our time, and our treasure. I'm fond of Gordon McDonald's little book on generosity because there he gives us the four characteristics of a good steward. He says a good steward never makes the mistake about what the owner owns and what the steward owns. There is never any confusion over ownership and stewardship. She or he knows rightfully what belongs to the owner. And a good steward will never argue for or fight for control over things she or he doesn't own. Nor will a good steward use those things to seek honor for himself, honor that only rightfully belongs to the one who owns that stuff, and in the end, a faithful steward will always give account for what she or he has done with the trust that was given to him, and in the end, will return the very things that were given to him in the first place, knowing that ultimately, they don't belong to him. When you think of that criteria, how are you doing with your own use of talent, time, and treasures? Now, when I talk about talents, I'm talking about our gifts, our spiritual gifts, the capacity that God has given us. Back when I was in Bible college, I spent a lot of time uh, kind of focusing on, almost obsessed with spiritual gift inventories, and I would love to hand them out to fellow youth leaders and to youth, to kids that are in our youth group. I remember coming home from Bible college one time and giving a gift inventory, this test that you could fill out with 24 questions on it, to my father-in-law. He was kind of befuddled with how to do it. I said, just fill in these questions here and then you know, add up the columns. And at the end, it'll tell you what your spiritual gifts are. So he filled it. I said, what are your spiritual gifts? He looked down. Well, I, I don't know. I said, well, add them up. And, and what word is at the bottom when you've got that, that total all there? He looked down. He says, oh, I've got the gift of celibacy. When he told me that, I was sitting beside his one daughter, who I was married to, and his other daughter was on this side, and I just heard him to sneak into the kitchen a few minutes ago to get a tea and a a cookie, and I heard his wife, my mother-in-law, say at the time, oh, Joe, stop, the kids are in the other room. So I'm pretty sure, (laughs) I'm pretty sure he didn't have the gift of celibacy. There was a while in congregational life in North America where lots of people were consumed with or obsessed with spiritual gift inventories. It seems nowadays when we hand out tests, it has more to do with the Enneagram, but back then, a lot of talk 
about spiritual gifts. I don't hear it as much anymore. But when you listen to people and their appetites for filling out these inventories and discovering what special capacities that God had given them, what they might have, most of the time, if you listen between the lines, you, hear, you heard people concerned about their own prominence in the community of faith, their own sense of worthiness, their recognition. For many of them, it was about self-actualization. Paul, in his writings, reminds us over and over again, our gifts are not primarily for ourselves. They are given to us from God, but they are not primarily for us. They are for others. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13 and 14, Paul talks lots about the gifts that were given. And in, cha- in verse 7 of chapter 12, he says to us that we have been given the manifestation of the Spirit. Basically, we all get the same gift. It's the Spirit of God that we're given. That Spirit likes to manifest Himself in different ways, give us different capacities, different competencies, different skills. But he says that same Spirit has been manifest for the common good. Not just for your good, although there's blessing in it, for the common good. And as we come to the end of that chapter, chapter 12, verse 31, there he says, now eagerly desire the greater gifts. Then he moves into chapter 13, and you expect him when he opens that chapter to give us a list of the greater ones versus the ones that aren't so great. But he doesn't. He goes on this tangent in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, and he ends up talking instead not about gifts, but love. Yeah, we call it the love chapter. And why does he talk so much about love? Because the proper stewarding of our gifts, the skills that the Spirit gives us, always corresponds to the way that we use those gifts to bless, to love other people. To pursue the well-being of another person, regardless of his or her deserving it, seeking nothing in return. If you're not using your gift that way, the well-being of another person, if you're not loving another person with your gift, you are not stewarding your gift properly. In fact, Paul, basically, if I could sum up chapter 13, says, you know what? You can be one of the most gifted persons in the world. You can have all sorts of giftedness. You can be one of the world's greatest leaders, greatest teachers, greatest organizers. You can have the gift of prophecy. You can be speaking in tongues. You can do all those things. You don't love other people. You are nothing more than a bunch of noise because you have been given those abilities to love other people. Finally, he gets into chapter 14, and he tries to illustrate what he's talking about. And there in chapter 14, the first part, he seems to argue for, uh, the argument seems to be that prophecy in many ways is a greater gift than tongues because of the way it edifies other people. In that passage, he says, somewhere around verse 3, the person who speaks prophecy speaks to others so that they are strengthened and encouraged and comforted in a way that when tongues is used, it doesn't accomplish the same thing, especially when no one is there to edify or to, to interpret. And then later on in verse 12 of chapter 14, he says, now that you eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, desire or excel in those ones that build up or edify the body because your giftedness is about encouraging and taking care of other people. Over the years, uh, preaching in congregational life, I'd come to realize that in some ways, this God had blessed me with the ability to teach or to communicate. Was I the world's greatest speaker? 
No, but relatively speaking, there was some ability to communicate the scriptures to other people. And for the longest time, speaking and preaching and communicating the word of God came relatively easy up until the last several months. And I don't know, somewhere in the last six months or so, it feels like using this gift has been like trudging through mud, both in the preparation and in its delivery. And uh, it has been anything but life-giving for me. So much so that as I enter into the task of preaching or teaching over these last several months, I have been scared. I have been frightened as I've stepped into it. And for years, it has come with relative, relative ease. So frightened that even a week ago when I was speaking in Calgary, stayed up, worked through the night on this, and it just wasn't coming, wasn't coming, wasn't coming. And at the very last minute, I decided to ditch the message and to use something else, something else I had done before that felt just a little more sure for me. You've heard preachers say that on Sunday mornings before, haven't you? You know, I was going to speak on something else, but the Spirit led me to... And then describe that they decided to go in a different direction. Now, there may be some sincerity to that, but I'm a cynic at some times. And I feel like in a good, good number of times, it just wasn't working out for them. So they fell back on something that they were a little more confident in. Now, I would like to say to you that I made that decision at the last minute because I cared mostly about people, didn't want to waste their time, wanted to give them something that was life-giving and hopeful, something that would lead them, leave them encouraged as they walked out the door. But the truth is, if I'm honest about what was going on deep down inside, I didn't want to look bad. I wanted to use something that would have me coming off a little better than I'd look if I used the other thing. And let me tell you, friends, that is not stewarding the gifts properly. Because God didn't give me that gift in order to shine, to honor myself, or to look good. The gift was given. It's not that we shouldn't work it and hone it and kind of refine it a little bit, but the gift was given in order to love, to bless other people, to build them up and to encourage them. It's not about self-actualization. It's not about your self-worth. It's not about trying to honor yourself in any way. Time is another thing that God has blessed us with and expects us to steward well. And I feel like we struggle in our ability to steward time well because we're overwhelmed with a sense, I believe it's a false sense, of scarcity in life. There's just not enough time to go around. And so we structure our days this way. We try to take all the things we think we need to do, and we try to cram them into the time that we think we have, the little time that we think we have, rather than letting each one of those things take the time that they require. And we find ourselves living lives that are frantic and frenetic and frenzied. We live lives that are kind of panicked because we don't feel like we have enough time, and I think our lives often succumb to that adage, the hurrier we become, the behinder we fall, or something like that. 
we find ourselves, our lives riddled with anxiety over little things like our inbox filling up with emails at such a rate we have no possible way to respond in a timely way. It fills our lives with anxiety and it causes us to be people who get cranky and grumpy when little interruptions come along. Not interruptions by some stranger knocking on your door, but even when your own friends and families, those that love you the most, want some of your time, we can get upset over those sort of intrusions, interruptions, because they're keeping us from getting to the things that we think are important. I believe we suffer from a form of functional atheism. If I asked everybody this morning, maybe I'll do it. How many people believe in God? Quickly. Now let me ask you, in the way that you steward the time, the way you exercise your time, the way you put it to work, Does it look like you believe that there's a God out there in control whose mastery over the hours and the calendar and your day planner? I think we take too much on ourselves and we step into the place of God thinking that everything depends on us and we forget that there is a God who is very much in charge. I think we forget That the stuff that God invites us into, that there is plenty of time to get it done in his time. Because the grace that entrusts that work to us is the same grace that empowers us to get that work done or empowers the work itself. Just in this past week, uh, I've had two colleagues say to me that they think I'm working too long and too hard. In fact, one of those colleagues kind of even went a little further and said, I wonder if you're doing the wrong work and if you're going about it in the right way because I see lots of toil. I just don't see joy in the work anymore. I quickly wanted to dismiss them, of course. In fact, I'm in charge, so maybe I'll just fire them if I don't like what I'm hearing. Only other than in that same week to hear from my wife, you know, all you do, honey, anymore is just work. You're up in the morning before I get up and you're on your computer And then I see you again later at night, typing, 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 answering emails. Heard my daughter in that same period of time. I heard this because she told me, my wife. I heard my daughter say, where's dad? And she had to say, well, he's gone away again on a series of meetings. And she said, again? And then one of our friends, a co-friend who was talking to my wife while she was kind of pouring out her heart about not doing, not feeling well about something, that friend said in the middle of the conversation, so where's Mike? Can he be of help? Oh, no, he's traveling again. Traveling again? He was just away, and now he's out again? I'm going to have to talk to that boy, which sounded a little condescending. For years, I feel like, through 30 years of pastoral ministry, I feel like I managed to honor Sabbath properly, to take the required rest that God tells us to take. And I feel like in the last two or three years, stepping to this new job, that whole thing has slipped. I've let it go. And this week, I came under great conviction reading the verse, Psalm 127, verse 2. It is in vain that you rise up early in the morning and go to bed late at night. Eating the bread of anxious toil. For he, referring to God, gives sleep to his beloved. 
It's like, oh, God, what am I doing? As I thought about what was going on in my life, I think stepping into this new role, there was a large part of me that wanted to prove myself. Again, this issue of honor. Maybe there's something going on there. I need to talk to a spiritual director about it. And so you work hard in order to make good first impressions. You work hard because you think that you're the one that it depends on, and that's not what God wants from us at all. And so I found myself being taken back to one of my favorite writers on this very, uh, this very topic, the, the topic of rest, Marva Dawn. You might know the name. I think she taught here in town at Regent College at one point. She does a wonderful job helping us understand what Sabbath is all about. Sabbath, again, is that practice of stopping in the cycle of seven days once. One of those days, stopping, letting go of the work, letting go of the cares and the things that are on our plate, relinquishing them, handing them back to God. Actually, the word means to cease. Just let go. Stop. And what we do when we let go, what we're actually demonstrating is that we trust, we're demonstrating that ultimately we trust God for our well-being, that he'll take care of us, that our well-being is actually not dependent on our work. And the act of stopping once during the seven days demonstrates that that's what we believe on the other six days, even when we are working. And I love how Don reminds us that in the story of creation that each day began for the Hebrews At sundown, the very first thing that God invites us to do is to what? To enter the night to sleep and to rest. And then we rise the next morning and it's out of that rest that we enter into the joy of work. In fact, she gets a little whimsical in her her reflection. She says, if human beings were created on the sixth day, and they were, but if it was the last thing that that God did on day six, think about that for a second. The very first human experience is entering into a day of rest. Makes humankind, and the very next day, it's just a time to break. It's a time to cease from our efforts. Our very first experience is to rest in God, and then out of that, we enter into the six days of work. It's in the rest, it's in the ceasing in our dependency on God that he reclaims us, He rejuvenates us, reorients us, and then sends us back out into the world. How are you doing with your use of time? We could have spent some time this morning talking lots about uh, how we should be sacrificing our time for the Lord. But I believe, unless we learn to steward our time properly in the first place around this rhythm or this idea of Sabbath, we'll never be able to properly order the rest of our week. It starts with the resting in God. And from there, we think about how we're using the rest of our time. Now, speaking about using the rest of our time, I made a promise this morning because our service is so full that I would stop abruptly when my time is up. I don't have my glasses on, so you're going to have to help me. What time is it? (laughs) What is it? It's 20 past? I'm more than done, okay? So I am just going to end right here, and I'm going to pray briefly. I'm not even going to keep going with the thought. Sorry I went so long. Um, Let me pray. Father, this idea, idea of stewardship is maybe a foreign concept, a hard thing for us. God, I pray that you'd help us to remember our very place in this world, that you are creator, we are creations. We are your very creatures. You have given us much and blessed us with much, and that we are to be responsible with all that you've given us and to steward it well. Would you help us to that end, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.